welcome to New Spring, everyone. We invite you to stand to your feet as we start to sing out some awesome songs today. Whether you're here in South, in North, or watching online, we just want to encourage you a little bit if that's okay. We just want to remind you that no matter what you're facing, our God is great. He sent his only son who overcame death. So I can assure you if he overcame that, you can overcome any struggle you're going through. Jesus, will you put your hands together? Here we go.
So I started noticing just weird bruising. That was the first thing that I noticed. Just bruises would kind of come and go um, different places around my body, from my arms to my legs. Then my vision started kind of getting blurry. Um, I would get lightheaded every now and then. These symptoms probably went on for about two weeks. I just kind of laughed them off and thought, oh, it's no big deal. It'll, it'll, thinking it'll go away. And, and uh, it didn't. I remember Katie was sitting next to me, doctor came in and he said, well, you know, it's still early. Um, and we're gonna keep you overnight just to keep monitoring you, uh, but you're showing signs of leukemia. Um, and at that point, come to find out, uh, my bone marrow was 97% filled with leukemia cells. It was hard. I mean, it's hard not to like doubt and be like, why, why us? So I just kind of, had to stop myself every single day or like a million times a day and just stop and pray and be like, I need peace right now. If you know Nick, he is the most positive person all the time. I mean, he never, he's always smiling and that didn't change at all. He was never scared, never worried. He was always so positive the whole time. We officially found out that I was in remission after the transplant. Uh, the first part of May. Um, so we were just excited to just get on with our lives at that point. You know, we were just looking forward to the future and just getting our life back to normal again. I just couldn't believe it. You know, at that point, my body had seen just about everything in terms of high dose chemo and radiation. Um, yeah, the cancer somehow was still in there. I. Uh, I definitely wasn't as positive uh, the second go-around as I was the first time, um, and the doctors weren't either. It was a lot harder the second time. We were under the impression that a bone marrow transplant meant your cancer is never going to come back. But I mean, it had only been six months, which is why the doctors were not as positive that time, because they were like, it shouldn't come back this fast. So I made it through the first three-week cycle of this uh, chemo they had me on. And they did a bone marrow biopsy, and uh, after the first the first three weeks, uh, I was in remission again. Um, so that was the best news I've ever gotten in my life. Uh, the doctors couldn't believe it, um, but I was confident in it. I remember leading on the weekend during that time and seeing Nick, um, you know, in a hoodie with his with his mask on up in the balcony and and, and singing, and just was such this like huge hard thing for me to um, to see that he was worshiping like all throughout this process of like going through this hard difficult time and I think about like him going through cancer and still like being able to sing and worship God and praise God like through this storm like yes I'm going through this but God is still worthy of my praise God still has a plan even if it meant that I don't make it through this life longer than what I had planned on, even if it means that, he's still worthy. Even through the darkest valley of my life, I'm still gonna praise him. The future, I mean, I think right now is looking, it's there for us right now, which we didn't know. I feel like every day, before we'd be praying like thank you for our time together but now that's obviously a way bigger deal like just having time together that's 
just something we didn't really know was gonna happen. Sorry. Do It Again was one of my favorite songs even before I got sick. Um, ultimately for me, it's about declaring uh, victory in Jesus' name over whatever you're going through in life. Um, just knowing that uh, he's gonna get you through it and that he's got a plan for your life. I'm proof that, that there's absolutely nothing, no storm that God can't get you through. We're so thankful for Nick and his wife and their testimony. We believe that God is faithful. Will you stand and join us as we sing about his faithfulness and his goodness this morning?
I can't escape 
fill up this space Cause my world needs you right now My world needs you right now What does it mean to be a champion? In this race I'm running, my, my qualification, qualification comes, comes from God. God. I have his power in me, and as I look to Jesus, I, I get, get stronger, stronger and stronger every day. I may get knocked down, but I always get, get back, back up. up. I may feel beat, but I never lose heart. I push harder, get tougher, get bolder, never, never give, give up. up. I'm a champion because he made me one. With God on my side, I know one thing for sure. I, I can't, can't lose. While we're coming to the end of our Clash of Dynasties 2 series, looking at the book of Daniel, and today, with only two messages left, today's and next week's, I'm probably going to go to a place that you might question as to whether it rises to the level to be one of our messages in the series. Because in today's message, in, from Daniel chapter 4, nobody's in a lion's den, nobody's in a fiery furnace, and there isn't even any prophecy about the last days. All you have in Daniel chapter 4 is a very powerful man having a nervous breakdown. The kind of nervous breakdown that goes to the place where he has to leave his life behind and basically just disconnect from everything. I want to talk to you about that today because, well, two reasons. Number one, I know that the times that you and I live in really press us on the emotional uh, and intellectual level. And many of us deal with anxieties in these days in which we live. The second reason why I feel like it rises to the level of talking about in our series is because I've experienced this firsthand. For those of you who are at New Spring sometime, perhaps in the past, you will recall that I've either talked about or you may have even been here nine years ago when I had kind of a, an emotional collapse. Just years of untreated anxiety disorder, years of untreated ADD, and years of pressing all the way to the breaking point kind of conspired against me. And with no warning, I just, sort of, I just sort of collapsed. It was a strange thing. I mean, I could take you to the spot on 13th Street over here where after preaching the second service on Saturday night, driving home, it was just like a string broke. And all of a sudden, the person who is used to being large and in charge... Uh, I don't want to make any decisions. I don't really want to go to any meetings. And I'm pretty verbal. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I never saw it coming. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know exactly why it went away. I just know that for two months, I just kind of collapsed. And the people who've known me and worked with me closely for years suddenly had a hard time processing who I was because I just kind of disappeared. Mary Alice has known me since she was 14 and I was 16 and in high school. And all of a sudden, the person that she knew just kind of evaporated. I mean, just simple things. I, I have to listen to music all the time. My life has a soundtrack. But all of a sudden, I didn't want to listen to music. I, I just didn't want to do anything. And for two months, as I said, I just kind of imploded. And when I came back home, 
I knew I could either euphemize it, I could talk about it in sanitary terms, I could just say, well, it was just a season of exhaustion, or I could take you into what I experienced and tell you what it was really like. And those of you who were here in those days know that I came back home and preached a series on it called Intensive Care. And the lessons that I learned, we had a rescue helicopter suspended from the ceiling. And then a year later, I came back and did another series called Valleys, where once again, I walked you through what it was like to go through that emotional collapse. So I bring this message to you, not only because I feel like it's important for what we're going to learn today, I bring it to you because I know what it's like firsthand to go through an emotional collapse. As I said, we live in very stressful times. And the challenge for us in these stressful times is to know how to think healthy in a crazy world. So that's what we'll call the sermon today, how to think healthy in a crazy world. Daniel chapter 4, and I am going to ask you to turn there if you have a Bible, if you have an electronic device with a Bible app, I'm going to ask you to go there because I want you to own this chapter. In 30 minutes, I'm not going to be able to talk about everything that's there, but I feel like if you have this chapter available to you, you're going to go into it, and you're going to learn a lot of lessons that I won't have a chance to talk about today. You know, when you study the Bible, a lot of times it's like eating lobster. It's a little work to get to it, but the meat is just real, real good. So I'm hoping that you will have Daniel chapter 4, and especially anyone who, like me, deals with an emotional disorder or anxiety disorder or ADD or There are other disorders, maybe some of you are struggling with depression or bipolar disorder, and I don't want to send the wrong message. It's not like studying these things will take the place of psychology or psychiatry, especially in in the realm of medical help. I benefited from that myself. I'm just saying what we're going to learn today is going to help us think better, all of us. And so I hope you have Daniel chapter 4 open to you today because we're going to learn a whole lot. And as I said... There's no lions in here. There's no uh, fiery furnace. There's no prophecy about the last days. It's just perhaps the most brilliant leader in the world having an emotional collapse. With that out of the way, let's jump right in in chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know... Well, there you go. Right now, we know who the guy who had the emotional collapse is. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. He is perhaps the most brilliant king in the history of the world. I say that for a reason. At this particular moment, Nebuchadnezzar is doing something no other king up to that point had done. He is ruling the entire world. But what's special about this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, was that he seemed to have all the gears. He seemed to have all the capabilities In his early life, in his late teens and early 20s, he was a military genius. And at that young age, he had actually led his military powers to conquer Assyria, which had been the reigning power. But after he experienced all those military victories in which he conquered the known world, his father, who was king, died, and suddenly Nebuchadnezzar is king. And now Nebuchadnezzar is CEO of the world. And his his organizational abilities, his ability to run things, he suddenly becomes the CEO of CEOs. Now think about that for just a moment. That's a pretty important shift to going from being the greatest military leader in the history of the world up to that time to the greatest CEO. But then as though that were not enough, Nebuchadnezzar built the ancient city of Babylon and Babylon contains some of the 
wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar drew up the hanging gardens and all the ziggurat and all kinds of artistic things. So consider that. Great military genius, great organizational genius, great artistic genius. Now, those things don't always grow on the same limb. So he's an extraordinary person. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to say to everybody, I want everybody to know about my emotional collapse. Now, when you think about it, that's pretty extraordinary. And Nebuchadnezzar is, as we used to say in the traditional church that I grew up in, Nebuchadnezzar is giving his testimony. So here we go. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God performed for me. His power, his wonders, his kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Well, the first question I have before me is, is this our boy Nebuchadnezzar? Is this the pagan king who overran Judah and took these young people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Amigo, took them captive? I mean, the guy sounds more like King David now in the Psalms. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 66, 13, and I, I use it all the time, especially if you attend First Wednesday here. A lot of times I'll, I'll open the First Wednesday talk with this. David said, come and listen, and I will tell you all the wonderful things that God has done for me. Do you ever feel that as a Christ follower? Do you, do you just, would you like to say to people, hey, come let me tell you the great things that God has done for me? I'm not surprised that King David says that. I am a little shocked that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, is saying to everybody in his kingdom, whether they're Jewish or Babylonian or Egyptian or, or Syrian or whatever, he's saying to every last person in my kingdom, I want you to come and hear what God has done for me. Well, something must have happened, right? Because we're talking about the Nebuchadnezzar that carried away Judah captive. We're talking about the Nebuchadnezzar who built a 90-foot tall statue to himself and said to everybody, if you don't bow down and worship the statue of me, I'm going to fry you in a furnace. So how did he go from that Nebuchadnezzar to the Nebuchadnezzar who's sending a text or social media post to the entire kingdom and saying to everybody, I want you to know the wonderful things that God has done for me. Well, something did happen and he wants to tell us about it. As you scroll through Daniel chapter four, it all begins with a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is freaked out by this dream that he has because in his dream he sees a tree and it's not any ordinary tree. It's in the middle of the earth and this tree grows all the way to heaven and there's fruit in the tree and everybody in the earth, eats, everybody in the world eats the fruit and the animals lodge under the shade of the tree. And all of a sudden he hears this voice come from heaven that says, cut it down, cut it down and leave the stump and the roots. Well, you know how dreams can shift? Isn't that kind of a weird thing about dreams? You know, it can be like in, you can start in this one location and suddenly you're in another location or you're with one group of people and next thing you know, you're with a different group of people. Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, all of a sudden the voice quits talking about a tree and it starts talking about a person. Look at this in verse 16. The voice from heaven says, let him lose his mind. Was a tree. Now we're talking about a person. Let him lose his mind and get an animal's mind in exchange and let this go on for seven seasons. Hey, if you had this dream, it'd freak you out. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's the boss of the world. So what he does is he calls in his intelligentsia. He calls in his magi. And he says, guys, I had this freaky dream about this tree. And this voice said, cut it down and leave the stump and the roots. And I want you to tell me what it means. And they said, sir, that's some crazy stuff. We do not know what that means. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar, I think this is just me talking. I think Nebuchadnezzar did not expect them to come up with the meaning. A lot of time has passed since Daniel first interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In chapter 2, if you were with us, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about this tall image made of different materials. We've talked about that. Daniel was probably about 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 when he interpreted that dream. Now Daniel is in his 40s. And Nebuchadnezzar knows that his intelligentsia probably are not going to know the interpretation to this dream. And so he saves Daniel for last. I think this way, this is Nebuchadnezzar's way of ascertaining that this dream is from God because he knows the others won't know, but Daniel will know. And so Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel in, says Daniel had this dream about the tree and this voice from heaven said, cut it down and leave the stump. And I need you to tell me what it means. And ordinarily Daniel would speak up and say, sir, this is what's going on. But this time Daniel is, is reluctant to tell the king. In fact, our translation says that Daniel is overcome with the meaning of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, recognizing this, says to Daniel, Daniel, don't be afraid to tell me. Just, just tell me what it means. In verse 19, Daniel says, sir, I wish this was about somebody else. I wish this was about your enemies. I, I wish it would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. And then verse 22, that tree, your majesty, is you. Well, that's very chilling. But as Nebuchadnezzar goes on telling the story here in Daniel chapter 4, it's very clear, though, that God is being merciful because this is a warning ticket. You ever get a warning ticket? You know, you're out driving your car and you're going, you know, you kind of lose track of the speed limit and you're going a little fast and all of a sudden the light bar comes up behind you and the patrolman's like motioning you to the side of the road and you're like, oh no. And, and all these thoughts start running through your head about what it's going to be like to get a ticket. Uh, you know, how am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to tell my husband? Or if you're a teenager, how am I going to tell my parents? And how many years am I going to be grounded because of this? And you're wondering about, is it going to like, are they going to cancel my insurance? You know, you got all this stuff that's going through your head while the officer's like walking up to your window. And then the officer comes up and he or she says, hey, listen, I don't know if you recognize this or not, but you were going 76 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you off, but I want you to pull your speed down. I want you to, I want you to change your driving. I'm going to let you go though. You know, a warning ticket. Oh, Thank you, Lord. At that point, you're praying all kinds of prayers of thanksgiving. You're bringing sacrifices in your car because you're just so thankful to get off with a warning. And that's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. This is a warning ticket. And Daniel pleads with him to respect that warning. Look at verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. And you're going to be able to keep right on going. Right about now, we need to move away from thinking about an ancient king. And for the rest of this message, I need to think about me and you need to think about you. I can tell you firsthand collapses happen because one happened to me. Now, I've spent the last nine years talking to leaders sometimes leaders of Christian organizations, sometimes leaders in the corporate world, because as I've discovered, this is a common thing. When it happened to me, I thought I was the only person in the world it had ever happened to. Since I came back and told my story, I have found myself in all kinds of environments talking 
to leaders who've gone through an emotional collapse. I've had all kinds of experiences. Unfortunately, there was another Christian leader in the United States who was well-known, and in his collapse, unfortunately, he didn't come back, and he took his life. And the family commissioned a biography of this leader, and they got to the last chapter, and they just said, we don't know how to write the last chapter, and they reached out to me and said, would you write the last chapter? I've had so many unusual experiences talking about this subject since it happened to me. And what I've learned is that there are different kinds of collapses. So let me give you a a general or generic definition for a collapse. By collapse, as it happened to Nebuchadnezzar, as it happened to me, it just simply means life as we know it stops. Life as you've come to know it doesn't keep going like that anymore. Life as you come to know it stops. Most of us cannot imagine that. I couldn't have. I didn't imagine it, and there's a reason why we can't imagine that life as we know it would stop, and that's because all we have is life as we know it. And so the idea that somehow I could wake up some morning and I could become a different person than I've ever experienced before, we don't believe it could happen because life has only been as we know it. And my fear is that some of you, especially men, will hear this and say, that could never happen to me. But the simple reality is, oftentimes, God has to allow us to have life as we know it stop in order for him to get our attention. And trust me, God knows what kind of collapse to send into our lives to cause us to completely rethink things. Or maybe the word reboot is a better word. But there's an economy to this message. Nearly all collapses don't have to happen because as we see with Nebuchadnezzar's situation, God will almost always warn us ahead of time that a collapse is coming. As many times as I've talked honestly with you about what happened to me, I don't think I've ever told this part until last night at four o'clock. I had warnings. In fact, there were three warnings that God gave me in the 12 months leading up to my collapse that I absolutely blew through. I remember sitting at a Mexican restaurant over here at the waterfront. My cousin, Anita Renfro, and her husband, John, who lived in Atlanta at the time. John's now our care pastor. But they were here. And Anita, my cousin, we grew up more like brother and sister than cousins. But Anita was confronting me about just how busy I was staying with no rest. And she kept explaining to me the biblical concept of Sabbath. And she said, Mark, you've got to take a Sabbath. And I immediately came back at her and said, no, I can't take a Sabbath. A lot of people are depending upon me. I've got all these things scheduled and you just don't understand my world. I can't slow down. And I said to her, I don't need to slow down. I am comfortable handling this. I said, I enjoy everything I'm doing. I don't need to take a Sabbath. Well, we both come from similar genetics. And so she came right back to me and said, Mark, you have to have a Sabbath and explain it to me. And I came right back to her and said, no, I don't need a Sabbath. And we went on like that. And and as close as I am to Anita, it got a little, just a tiny bit elevated. And Marilyn's reminded me yesterday when I was walking to my car at the parking lot there in Waterfront, I said, the next person who says Sabbath to me, I'm going to scream. A few months later, I was doing a conference at a magnificent conference center one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And I was speaking morning and night. And the manager of that conference center said, Pastor, we have a beautiful home here that's been donated by a wealthy family. And it's magnificent. It's perfectly situated. And they just want busy pastors 
who have a lot of stress to just be able to come and spend time here and rest. And he said, I want to make this available to you. And I said, thank you. That's fine. I just don't think I would ever have time for that. And there was another warning as well. God gave me three warnings within 12 months, but I blew through every one of them. I didn't listen to any of them. In fact, frankly, I was pretty arrogant in my response to those warnings. I preach this today because somebody's getting a warning right now. Maybe it's happened recently. There's something in your life that you know isn't healthy. It may be something in your life that you know is wrong. And like Anita was speaking into me, maybe someone has talked to you and said, you need to rethink this. But you resent that and you push back against it. It could be that that warning is coming right now in this message. It could be that God's spirit, not audibly, but God's spirit is talking to you, bringing something up to your mind. I mean, right now it's moving up into your frontal cortex. There's something right now that you know isn't right. And God is saying, pay attention to this. Collapses don't have to happen. The problem is that we resent those warnings. And oftentimes we push back against them like I did. But never forget this. Don't resent a warning because warnings are opportunities. Warnings, are, warnings have an economy to them. They are, they are opportunities to avoid crises. And Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Sir, if you will change, this doesn't need to happen to you. And indeed, 12 months go by before Nebuchadnezzar's collapse happens. There's 12 months for Nebuchadnezzar to turn around. Maybe it's a good time for us to ask, why don't we respond to warnings? For all of you who had warning tickets, did, did, did it work? Did it stop you from speeding for the rest of your life? And, and, and I'm being facetious with you, but there's something about warnings that they don't seem to work. And someone could say, well, it's because the moment passes. But I think it's got to go, different from, be, go deeper than that. I think warnings oftentimes don't work with us because they don't change our thinking. Nebuchadnezzar's got a warning that he's arrogant, that he's puffed up, that he's, he's got a, a greater sense of his own importance than there really is. But 12 months later, he's still the same Nebuchadnezzar. Let's read about his crash. Verse 29. 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of his royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you're fired. Well, it doesn't exactly say that. Pretty close. O King Nebuchadnezzar, you're no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. Nebuchadnezzar walking on the top of the palace saying, look, I did it all. I did it for me. Crash. The next thing you know, he's lost his mind. He can't think straight. Life as he knows it has stopped. Maybe this is a good time to make a point. Bravado is not the same thing as actual power. 
Isn't that peculiar that a lot of times we humans will respond with bravado, we'll respond with some statement like, no one's going to tell me what to do, or I'm just fine. It's like we say things in bravado as though they're actual power. I, I was in high school at the end of the Vietnam War, and things were t- trailing off, and the draft wasn't as prolific as it had been before, but there were still kids joining the military. So here I am, a sophomore in high school, and this kid that I knew who sat next to me in class came storming into class one day and slammed his books down on his desk, and I could tell he was really angry. And I should tell you beforehand, he wasn't exactly the brightest kid in the school. He definitely was not the most athletic kid. I'll tell you that for a reason, because he slammed his books down and he said, I'm going to join the Marines. Well, I didn't think he was one of the few or the proud, but anyway, I asked him, why are you going to join the Marines? He said, I'm tired of taking orders. Word for word. He said, my old man does nothing but give me orders. I'm going to go join the Marines because I'm tired of taking orders. <laughs> How many of you know that bravado is not the same thing as power? I'm in my 42nd year of pastoring, my 35th year here at New Spring. And I've spent much of my ministry trying to plead with someone who's doing something unwise on behalf of someone who loved them. I have talked to husbands on behalf of wives. I've talked to wives on behalf of husbands. I've talked to kids on behalf of parents. And as New Spring got younger and younger, I had the most interesting experience. I've talked to parents on behalf of kids. It was amazing to me when I started having 17, 18, 19-year-olds come into my office and saying, Mark, can you help me get my parents off drugs? I've had that happen way more times than you can imagine as pastor of New Spring. Mark, can you help me get my parents to keep them from doing crazy stuff? And I, I, would, I would find myself in this position of pleading with someone who is doing something really unwise, and I would give them the same speech that I always do, which is some version of, this is not going to end well. If you've ever heard me say you can't flip God off and win, that has come from thousands of experiences of talking to people who thought they could. But they would always answer with bravado, as if to say, my bravado gives me power and strength. If I say nobody's going to tell me what to do, then I'm somehow strong. If I can say I'm going to do what I want to do, then I'm somehow strong. No one's going to tell me what to do. But jails are real good at telling people they have to do what they don't want to do. Hospitals are real good at making people do what they don't want to do. Funeral homes are very good at making people do what they don't want to do. See, the silliness of bravado, the silliness of saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, 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 we're not. Life can change to the point where it's not the way we've always known it to be. Well, my prayer is that you and I will listen to the warnings and avoid the crashes. But given the fact that many will not, we might want to ask the question, why do crashes work better with us than warnings? The warnings that I had to change the way I live my life and to face the realities that I need to face, the warnings didn't get through to me. I assure you when I had the crash, I quickly learned what I needed to learn. So why do crashes work better than warnings? 
The answer is simply this. Crashes force us to do the last thing we're usually willing to do, which is to face ourselves. Isn't it true, if you think about the people that you know in, in, in our lives, isn't it true that people are usually reluctant to face themselves? They will talk about wrong things that other people do. I mean, in our age of social media, how many of you follow comment threads? Or if you're, you know, if you're just looking at a social media post, how many of us look at the comments that people make? And how many of those comments are judgmental? How many of them are critical? How many of them are fault-finding? How many times do you like get on this social media site and it's like all the people who comment pretty much go on this social crusade as if to demonize anyone who would think of saying or doing such a thing? How do we get here in 2019? Are we so critical? Are we eyeball deep in blame because we've become so holy and we have this high standard of living? Are you kidding me? So many people in 2019, their lives are train wrecks. So how do we get off of all this blame and fault finding and demonization I can give you the answer. It's pretty simple. If we ever stopped all that nonsense, we would have to look ourselves in the mirror. We would have to face ourselves, and most people just will not face themselves until they have a crash. And that's too bad. Because when you read this story, there is one thing that you cannot escape. And I hope you will read it when you go home. The one thing you can't get away from is how excited and how happy Nebuchadnezzar is to tell you this story. I mean, we are listening to the most powerful man in the world have the most embarrassing thing that could possibly ever happen to him. We're talking about the most powerful man in the world who's had all these successes freaking out and thinking he's an animal and losing his mind. And yet he seems so excited to tell us about it. Now that's what stands out to me. Because we would assume that Nebuchadnezzar would try to hide this story. After all, he's king. He controls all the publicity. He controls all of the official organs. And yet you have Nebuchadnezzar sending out a message to the entire world telling about how he lost his mind and acted like an animal. And he said, I want everybody to know about this. How do you put those two things together? It's what this message is about. Do you understand that our world sends us a message just like it sent Nebuchadnezzar a message that goes something like this? If you ever make it to the top, you're going to be happy. If you, ever, if you ever make it to the CEO, if you ever make it to lead partner, if you ever make it to president, if you ever make it to the most powerful person in the room, then you're going to be happy and you can do whatever you want to do and you're going to find all kinds of meaning in life. Most of us are never going to get there. It's going to be like the carrot before the horse and we're going to go after that and go after that and go after it. We're not happy now, but if I could ever just get to the top, I would be happy. New Spring has a lot of people who make it to the top. And some of you who make it to the top, know what I'm about to say. That it can be a very, very difficult existence. If anyone had looked at me nine years ago, I mean, if you had looked at it on paper, I was considered to be 
one of the greatest leaders in Christian America. I was a sought-after speaker. New Spring was one of the fastest-growing churches in the country by percentage. People were wanting to know our secrets. Everything seemed to be going fantastic for us on paper. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is happy to tell us about how he's no longer master of the universe because he's experienced liberty in that crisis. I'm going to tell you what I think is wrong with America today. I think you and I live in a world where we are pressured into being our own God. And other people want us to be their God. Now, we would never say that. They would never say that. They would, everybody would deny that. But still, if you think about it, we're in this, we're in this per- performance orientation in which the pressure is on us. And because of electronic devices, we're never away from it. The pressure is always on us to be better and to be our best. And the idea is somehow we're going to be our own God or we are to be somebody else's God. How many, how many times have you been to, those of you in the corporate world, how many times have you been to a seminar and you hear that if, it's, if it is to be, it's up to me? Well, I believe in personal responsibility as much, if not more than anybody, but that's a terrifying thing to think about. If it is to be, it's up to me. And most of us were racing through life, not enjoying it. I mean, we have things that we do enjoy, but we're racing through life. And it's like something is chasing us. We're chased. And it's like there are ghosts chasing us. And we're racing to keep ahead of our own concerns about our failures and the failures that people perceive us to have. And then as we race through life, That's where guilt comes in because we feel like we let people down and the insecurities because of what I should be and the sense of inadequacy. And then when those things come, then there's a whole second tier of issues. I really believe that's where a lot of the anger issues of our time come from is that we come up short and resentment and sadness that won't go away. It's like we're being chased by ghosts. The sad thing is there's something about the ghosts that are chasing us that we don't realize. Let me tell you a hokey story. Maybe this will help. My family on both sides came up in South Texas in farm country down there. I had an uncle who was my mom's oldest brother, and I'm a late born to late borns, and so he was like more the age of my grandparents, but I was in awe of my Uncle Albert. I mean, he sort of had like George Clooney class, and yet he was brilliant, and he was also a very godly man. And so I, had, I was just almost scared to talk to him. And he mostly talked to the adults. But when I was about 14, we had this family gathering at my house in Fort Worth. And for all of you who've ever had a family gathering, you know how that your driveway gets filled with cars. And usually your cars get blocked in by all the other relatives. And that happened to us. And we needed something for lunch. And I said to my dad, I'll walk down to the convenience store and get it. We had a convenience store about a quarter mile to a half mile away. And to my utter amazement, my Uncle Albert said, I'll go with you, Mark. And so I had that wonderful walk down there and walk back with my Uncle Albert, and he told me all kinds of stories about growing up in Texas. But there's one story that I think about a lot. He told about how that when he was a kid, about 11 years old, 11, 12 years old, they had this farmhouse in rural South Texas, and there was a cellar under the house where my grandmother kept a lot of her canned goods. And 
my Aunt Ethel, who was a year younger than my Uncle Albert, often was told that she had to go down into the cellar and retrieve things in the cellar. And she was terrified to do it, first of all, because of the real concerns. Snakes, which are prolific down there, rattlesnakes, and all kinds of insects and that kind of thing. But she was also terrified of ghosts. So my grandmother would make my Uncle Albert accompany her down there. Now, you can imagine if you're a 12-year-old boy and you got an 11-year-old sister and she's afraid of ghosts and you have to go with her to the cellar, it's not your favorite thing to do. So, but Albert went down there with her and, and she, Ethel was carrying a mop over her shoulder and, you know, hanging back behind her. And mischievously, he saw a piece of luminescent cheesecloth. And when she wasn't looking, he tossed it over the back of her mop and it draped all the way to the ground. And Albert said, Ethel, what's that following you? And she turned around and there was a ghost. And she begins to run from the ghost. She runs slow, the ghost runs with her. She runs fast, the ghost runs faster. She turns left, the ghost turns left. She turns right, the ghost turns right. She runs up the steps, the ghost chases her up the steps. Albert said he got the hardest whipping he ever got in his life. (laughs) But that's us, isn't it? We're being chased by ghosts that we're carrying. Let's make this practical and we'll be through. The reason we don't want to face ourselves and the reason Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to face himself was if we ever faced ourselves, we would have to admit our thinking is wrong. Now, we'll, we'll stop short of that. We'll say some of my actions are wrong. Or we might even say some of my thoughts are wrong, but we're real reluctant to say that our thinking is wrong. Because by thinking, I'm talking about thought processes and attitudes. See, the deal is, we think that's right. In fact, we see our thinking as the great arbiter. That even sometimes we'll say that our thoughts have been wrong, our actions have been wrong. But we think our thinking is right. And yet, it's that great arbiter that is the problem. In in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, the Bible says, There is a way that seems right to the man, but the end leads to death. Have you ever heard that the Bible tells us that the way to begin a relationship with God is by repentance? When I was a kid, I used to think that repentance meant feeling sorry for your sin. Well, that's, that's good to do, but that's not what repentance means. The Greek word for repentance is two Greek words that are jammed together into one. The first one is a prefix that you recognize, meta, M-E-T-A, we, our word metabolism, metastasis, means change. And noia, the root word nousis, mind or thinking. Do, do we understand that that is God saying if we want to have a relationship with him, the first thing that we have to do is we have to say, my thinking is wrong. Repentance. It is the willingness to come to God and say, God, I don't even know how to think. And so today, for anyone listening to this message, if you're going through a time of warning, please please stop now. There's no reason to have a crash. If you're willing to have that change of thinking and saying, God, my thinking is wrong. I need you to help me. I need to come to you. I need to submit my life to you then you can avoid the crash. I was born at night, but not last night. And so I know that some watching in this auditorium or south or watching on television or watching on the internet 
I know that there are those who would say, I really don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to think the way I want to think. I am going to live my life the way I want to live my life. I know I can't cause you to change. But I want to give you one line out of chapter 4 that I hope that you will remember. In Daniel 4.32, God said to Nebuchadnezzar, you will live this way until you learn. If that doesn't cause chills to go up and down your spine, it sure does cause them to go up and down my spine. You, you see, that's what happened. When I had a crash, it was God's way of saying, Mark, you're stubborn, and you won't listen. You won't listen to the people who are trying to help you. You're, you're full of yourself. You don't think you are, but God is saying, Mark, you're full of pride. And God is saying, okay, I'm going to let you crash. And you know what? I'm going to let you live this way until you learn. I'm talking to somebody here today, and you're hell-bent to do what you want to do. And you just keep banging your head against that wall, and you're banging your head against the wall, and you're blaming your wife, you're blaming your boss, you're blaming everybody that you can find to blame. And yet, at the end of the day, God loves you, and he's in heaven, and he's saying, I'm going to let you live this way until you learn. Man, learning sounds like a very good idea to me. So one more time, let's, let's ask this question. Why, why does the most powerful man in the world, why is he so exuberant to tell you about the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to him? Well, I've lived the answer to that question. You see, when you come back from that kind of crash, and you start living the way God wants you to live, it's so much better, and it's so liberating. You're, you're wanting to tell everybody you can find, hey, listen to me. Let me tell you what happened to me. I was really screwed up, and God tried to stop me, and I wouldn't listen to him, and I hit the wall. And during that wall, when I hit the wall and I crashed, I learned something. I learned that God still loved me, and I learned that he wants the best for me. And I'm experiencing that, and I want you to know it too. Let's read it, and we'll be through. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can stop him or ask him, why do you do what you do? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. How cool is this? We're going to see this guy in heaven, this pagan king who experienced God. As I close out this message, I have to tell you one thing that I find really interesting. Nebuchadnezzar has said good things about God before. About 25 years before when Daniel interpreted his dream, Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel, that's some God you got there. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fiery furnace because Jesus met them down there, Nebuchadnezzar said, I don't want anybody to say anything bad about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. But this time, Nebuchadnezzar said, he's my God, and I worship him. Not through the lens of my parents' experience, not through the lens of someone else's experience. 
I humble myself and I worship God. And it all turned around. I want to do two things as I close out the message. First of all, I want to pray for you because somebody here, somebody watching has got a warning. You may have gotten it before you came in. You may have gotten it today. You're getting a warning. You're getting a warning ticket. And bravado is rising up within you. But remember, bravado is not the same thing as intelligence or power. On the other hand, somebody's in a crisis right now. You're in a breakdown. And your life as you know it has stopped. But here's the thing. If you let... If you let God, he will show up in that and he will reorient your life and bring you back to stronger than ever. So let me pray for you. Dear God, for anyone listening to a warning today, help them to pay attention to it and to submit themselves to your will. Father, for anyone who's going through a breakdown, may they feel your presence very close. And Lord, for anyone who's struggling with mental and emotional issues and who needs to seek help, uh, psychological help, psychiatric help, oh, Father, help them to be humble enough to submit to that and help us to recognize, Lord, that our bodies are not meant for the kind of stress that we're under today. And now, God, I pray, especially if there's anyone here today who is yet to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may it happen in the next few minutes in Jesus' name, amen. Let's bow our heads just a little longer. If you're watching today and you're saying, Mark, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? You said Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see him in heaven. Well, he kind of gives us a schematic, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar said, I recognize that I need to humble myself before the God of creation. The Bible tells us that salvation, eternal life is a free gift. All you have to do is receive it. That Jesus paid for it on the cross when he died to pay for your sins. And that he arose from the grave proving that he's God. And anyone who is willing to put confidence, complete trust in him for salvation can be forgiven of sin and promised everlasting life. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. This is a prayer that receives God's gift. And if you want to pray with me, you can. Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I want Jesus for my Savior. I turn from my old way of thinking, and I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed for me, you can go to any info center and say, I prayed with Mark. I have a gift box. It won't cost you anything. It's a Bible just like I preach from, a book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions and some other cool things. God bless you. Thank you. We'll see you next week for the last week of Clash of Dynasties. <laughs>